This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hiya. Hi. Hi, David. I saw I'm a bit late. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Thank you for doing this. This water's for you, by the way. Oh, thank you. I've got a free mug of water. <laughs> if only you'd said I'd have been up here ages ago. Um, Joseph Harker is the senior editor for Diversity and Development at The Guardian. He's also been the co-lead on the Legacies of Enslavement project. He's worked here for more than 30 years and has played a crucial role in progressing an anti-racist agenda at The Guardian. So, for journalists of colour like me, he's something of a living legend. When I joined The Guardian, which was... 13 years ago in 2010, my then boss, Afwa Hirsch, pointed you out in the newsroom and said, I wouldn't be here and you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Joseph Harker and the anti-racist work that you'd done at The Guardian. Lots of staff here who are people of colour even call you Uncle Joseph (laughs) for that reason. What drives you? Shaking people out of their comfort zone when clearly their comfort zone is one which doesn't challenge racism, is one which sees liberal racism as acceptable. It just needed to be done. I just thought, well, I've got to do it. And if I don't do it, no one else will. And I just needed to see change. Joseph's struggle against racism began as a kid growing up in Hull, a city in the northeast of England in the 1960s and 70s. I was, for most of my life, the only black kid in my school, let alone in my class. And... uh, It was a kind of different time, a different era, felt like a different planet almost. There was constant taunting and racial taunting from my classmates, even though I was age six, seven, eight at the time. Literally every playground, someone would call me the N-word or whatever. And it was an era when there was no point in talking to the teachers about it. So I just felt completely on my own and much of the time just wishing I could be white so I could fit in with the rest of the crowd. You just survive it. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you strong. By the time Joseph finished university in the 80s, Britain was experiencing a period of profound unrest. Uprisings against police brutality, racial discrimination and a lack of opportunity were happening across the country. And Joseph wanted to be part of the fight back. A chance conversation inspired him to get in touch with The Voice, Britain's leading black newspaper. And after submitting an article to them, they took him on as a reporter. Where there were... All kinds of black people, black people just like me who had one white parent who grew up in majority white communities and black people from Africa, from the Caribbean, from small islands, the big islands, all over the place. It just made me realise that there's no one way to be black. Whoever we are, we are authentic black people and I no longer felt the need to be anything or to pretend to be something I'm not. Joseph was at the forefront of an extraordinary period of history, including the end of apartheid in South Africa. He interviewed Nelson Mandela a few months after he was released from prison. Working at The Voice proved to be a transformational experience. But after four years there and an attempt to set up his own black publication, Joseph wanted to see what it was like at a bigger national newspaper. After a chance meeting with The Guardian's features editor, 
Joseph started on the desk in the early 90s. But after years in the black press, The Guardian was a very different experience. The thing that really struck me about The Guardian was I was expecting it to be white, but I wasn't expecting it to be so Oxbridge. And it really threw me that so many people around me on the desks were former Oxford or Cambridge graduates. And there was a real lack of class diversity. I got here and I felt this is not the place for me. I felt I'm not going to thrive in this place. I'd spent five years in the black press and I wasn't going to come to The Guardian and just be quiet when I saw things that I didn't feel were right. But when I would raise them, I was obviously at junior level in my department And I'd just be told, well, that's why we do things around here, dear boy. And a very patronising way of saying things. And there was a white liberal view of the world, which was, we almost don't need black people here because we speak for black people. We understand racism. As one person told me at the time, I don't need to listen to you about racism. I've read Eldridge Cleaver. So it was that kind of attitude. And it just felt a place where you survive. Back in the 90s, Joseph recalls being one of around six people of colour in an organisation of more than a thousand people. As a junior member of staff, trying to introduce other perspectives at times felt very daunting. But there was a turning point in the wake of the racist murder of Stephen Lawrence. Duane and Stephen had been waiting for a bus. The service had been disrupted. They'd gone to the corner to see if it was coming when the gang attacked. It was Britain's George Floyd moment. Racism was in the news. It was front and centre. At the heart of this inquiry is the allegation from the Lawrences and their lawyers that racism permeated the police investigation into Stephen's death and permeates the society in which it happened. And on the day before the inquiry, I was looking to The Guardian in this week thinking, yes, The Guardian's really going to nail it here. It's really going to show its support at this moment, the maximum level of awareness of racism in this country. This columnist, who was the most senior Guardian columnist, wrote a piece in effect saying, Well, things may be bad here, but don't worry, it's a lot better here than it is in the United States. And that sort of attitude of just downplaying the racism, which was so raw, was so in the open. If that's what the chief Guardian columnist was writing, I just felt that day, it was the first day I'd ever spoken in our morning meeting, and I just had to go in and say, this is not right, we cannot be saying this. And it started a conversation. The attitude in the room at the time was, who the hell are you? Who is this person challenging us and our view of the world in which we are very settled? And we must be right because we all think the same thing and who are you to tell us that we're wrong? And um, there was a person of colour, Kamal Ahmed, who was actually the media editor at the time. And they turned to him and asked him, what do you think? Obviously expecting him to shout me down or to put me down in some way. And he just said, I think Joseph's got a point. And it was almost like magical. From that moment, I just felt validated. I felt empowered. I thought, I'm not just speaking for myself. You have not been able to isolate me. Just in those six words that Kamal said, it just had this effect on me. And I thought, this is my moment. I really have to seize this and keep running with it. And I've basically been running with that ever since for the last 25 years. In the years since, Joseph has continued to work hard to bring change to the news organisation, both internally and in our journalism, including setting up a work placement scheme that has been running for more than 20 years. If I see something where clearly stereotype language has gone into an article or where there are victims of an incident, say, and we only use the white victims rather than the black victims, or where there have been clear 
failures in our reporting, just objective failures of reporting, have raised those issues. It was another tragic murder, this time George Floyd, at the hands of a police officer that triggered a widespread conversation about racism in society in 2020. Just like in the 90s, it was a key moment for internal discussions around race at The Guardian. New positions were created and Joseph was appointed Senior Editor for Diversity and Development in 2021. It was around the same time that he was brought on to co-lead The Guardian's Legacies of Enslavement project, following the results of research commissioned by the paper's owner, the Scott Trust. That research discovered that the paper's founding editor and most of its financial backers had made much of their money off the back of the enslavement of African people. I remember Kath Viner, our editor, sending me the report in early 2021. And the name at that point, I must admit, Taylor didn't mean that much to me, John Edward Taylor. I hadn't read my Guardian history. He's just another old dead white man as far as I was concerned. <laughs> but the, um, my initial reaction was, I think this is a really good thing The Guardian's doing. I think it's a really good thing The Guardian's being open about it. And in terms of the project, my only doubt was, can we do it justice? Is The Guardian really going to be prepared for this? The reports that were published this March revealed links between the paper and enslaved people in Jamaica, the Sea Islands of the southeastern United States, as well as connections to enslavement in Brazil. Joseph was part of a team who began to consider what needed to happen in response. And then it became an issue of what do we do? What do we do to the descendant communities, to the people who are still living with the legacy of the slavery era? And how do we do something meaningful that's going to make a difference to their lives. And what can we do that really matches the moment? What can we do that really signals that we are taking this seriously, that we understand how meaningful this really is for The Guardian and its history, given that without enslaved labour, would The Guardian have even been created in the first place? The Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, was also part of that team. Well, I think the first big challenge to acknowledge is that this is clearly an unpayable debt. Nothing can recompense for this crime against humanity. Second of all, as with the first big news organisation to do something like this, there was no blueprint to follow. We had to sort of work it out ourselves and that means we will make mistakes and get things wrong. And So we realised quite quickly that all we could do was try. My name is Maya Wolf-Robinson, and you're listening to Cotton Capital, Episode 6, Reparations. When you hear the word reparations, what comes to mind? In the context of transatlantic slavery, most people just think about the money. But this project has made me realise that the attempt to repair the harm caused by crimes of the past and their grip on the present is about so much more than that. And yet... The opinions of those who live with the legacy of slavery are all too often sidelined in any conversation about reparations. For Ray Kerr, one of the farmers up in the Dolphin Head Mountains of Hanover, Jamaica, reparation starts with the acknowledgement of that harm through an apology. I'm not about monetary, because you can't calculate that. In terms of suffering, in terms of pain, in terms of death, what people go through. Sin? So then, then firstly, I have to apologise. If me done wrong, firstly, it is of good standing for me to say, boy, I'm sorry, I've done that. Seen? Others in Jamaica pointed to educational resources, social programmes and access to technology or infrastructure as a means of recovery. 
For Reverend Bowen of the Goanies Mount Baptist Church, it demands psychological healing work on all sides. Because they would need to be repaired too, because it would have to be a denying of one's soul to be able to you know, impart such injustice to another person. So they also were damaged and need that kind of reparation. We are humanity. Some see reparations as an unpaid debt of labour that needs to be paid back. In the United States, it's been estimated that it would cost the federal government between 10 and 19 trillion dollars, or payments of $800,000 for each black household to close the racial wealth gap brought about by enslavement. In the Sea Islands, community leaders like Dr. Emery Campbell and Sister Pat Gunn point to the stark inequalities stemming from this debt. Well, if they know how it was attained, and if they know the suffering of people to this day from slavery, who are starving or having, don't having even the basics, they should share it. You started at British Empire. You have to own your part of this. They should be ashamed that you took Georgia Sea Island cotton, Mississippi cotton, and you took it to the cotton mills, and you exploited the poor whites in England too. So you went from slavery to child labor violations, all of that, that was England, because everybody had to have fine linen. So anybody has anything to do with repair in terms of funding, it's Manchester in terms of cotton. Harking back to the broken promise of 40 acres and a mule made during the Civil War, others we spoke to there pointed to land ownership as the means by which true autonomy could be achieved as well as memorialization through monuments and museums. In Salvador and Brazil, Candomblé priestess Ian Yeza Cruz mentioned something I had never thought of before. Reparations in the form of DNA tests after a sustained campaign to destroy official records and private ledger books documenting enslavement. Everyone wants to know where they come from, what is your history, who doesn't want to know that? And I think that every Brazilian should do this. Everyone must know where they come from. And the state should provide it for everyone. And this is very important to me. And I will not leave the earth without that information. Finally, when it comes to a future that has truly come to terms with the legacies of slavery, for people like Esther Figaro, the Jamaican independent filmmaker, reparations cannot separate chattel slavery from the global system of extraction and exploitation that emerged off the back of it. So for me, reparations isn't just about working out the figures, you know, (laughs) how much do you owe? I mean, the amount is incalculable, right? How do you calculate millions of lives? How do you calculate all the soil that has been taken. How do you calculate all the trees, the water? How do, it's impossible, right? What needs to happen is the devolution of these societies. They need to stop. This notion of endless growth and that we must all be like these societies. No. We have to destigmatize the notion that 
having few material things makes you poor. No, it doesn't. Having an overaccumulation of things makes you ecocidal. It makes you genocidal. It means that you are taking more than your share. And you are taking away the future of your children and your grandchildren and their children and grandchildren, right? That makes you a bad ancestor. That makes you criminal, crazy, and craven. You can stop, and it's time to stop. So what was the Scott Trust's starting position on how to respond to the findings of the research? Here's Joseph Harker again. The first step in coming up with a plan for restorative justice was to talk to the experts, people like Professor Olivet Atele and other reparations campaigners. We brought in black staff to hear what they thought and the ideas that they had. And then we went wider than that as our ideas developed. We had meetings with leaders and cultural leaders within the sea islands of the southern states of the United States. And we also had a trip to Jamaica where we met with people around the old plantation which George Phillips owned in Hanover and also met reparations campaigners. We met the local MPs, we met Sir Hilary Beckles and Professor Vereen Shepherd, who were kind of leading voices and also the culture minister Olivia Grange who all gave their thoughts on what would be appropriate. Collaboration and listening to descendant communities is a key part of The Guardian's response. We want to bring local communities with us. We want to use their knowledge and work with them to come up with a programme which everyone can be happy with. And that's why we're appointing a programme director who's an expert in this kind of work, who's an expert in working with communities and building trust with communities and running projects with communities. And that's what we really want to do. We're based in London. We're talking about projects that are on the other side of the world. We would never for a moment seek to impose our thinking on them. It has to be done in full consultation. That consultation and hearing what descendant communities want from reparations is not something you often hear in a lot of media conversations on this topic. I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. Let's face it, slavery is worse today than it was 100 years ago. I beg to differ. This is just the latest example of lefty woke word salad from people who want Britain to hate itself. I mean, how far back do we go with this stuff? What would Martin Luther King say if he was still with us about this concept? I don't know. He would think would, it's ridiculous. I, what, what do you think he would say? He was a man who because wanted unity. Your, he wanted unity. And, you know, unity. and this will be the most that's divisive suggesting thing. suggesting that I don't want unity. Let's just get this bit out of the way. What would you say to people that make a lot of these same arguments that are against the idea of reparations or restorative justice? So, for example, slavery was so long ago, why are you still banging on about it? No one alive did any of this stuff. It's true that slavery was abolished in Britain 180 years ago, but the legacy lives on. I mean, let us not forget, for one, that slavery was only abolished because the enslavers were given a massive amount of compensation, £20 million in 1833, which even on the most conservative estimate is £17 billion in today's money. And it was such a massive amount that it took 182 years until 2015 for the money which Britain had borrowed to pay that amount was actually paid off. So anyone who paid tax up to 2015 was actually 
effectively paying the enslavers and the compensation that they received for losing their what was called at the time human property. But beyond that, slavery embedded a system of beliefs about black people being subhuman, being savages, and people who needed to be treated brutally in order to be kept in place. Centuries later, we are still living with that. We are still living with those attitudes. Whenever someone calls, as I was called at school, the N-word, that's someone directly harking back to that period, saying, you are inhuman, you are subhuman, you need to be treated brutally. For Joseph, the legacies of slavery continue to shape the lives of black people. The rate of expulsions of black kids at school, not even to mention the rate in which we found out recently that black children are strip-searched. The list could go on to include the suppression of histories, systems of work, colorism, police brutality, jobs. We're always having to justify ourselves to prove that somehow, despite being black, we can be trusted in these senior positions. So this is something that is part of our lives, part of our existence. It's stereotypes that we have to overcome almost every day. And that's why the legacy of slavery still matters. And what about the argument that reparations are impossible? Where do you even start? It would bankrupt you. How much do you pay? All of that. People may feel that, but I think with any organisation, with any institution, you can just do what you think you can. There are always things that can be done. We're going to hear more about what The Guardian did decide to do. But while institutions looking into reparative justice is a fairly recent development, the movement for reparations stretches back centuries. When I was in Jamaica, I went to meet a leading figure in the movement. I'm Barbara Makeda Blakehana, and I have to include the Makeda because that's my Ethiopian baptismal name, and it identifies me as a Rasta who is aware of her African origins and the importance of that. On a bright sunny morning, I went to meet Barbara, she said I can call her that, at a hotel in Kingston. I was an uptown girl, you know, mm-hmm. a real uptown girl. I went to a boarding school that had a hundred girls, 90 of whom were white, rich girls from the other islands. That was how I'd been brought up, to be white, mm. to be white, unfortunately, with a brown face, but as white as I could be, straightening my hair, mm. to be white. I'd been brought up to be that. That was the... The prototype. After growing up in Uptown Kingston, Barbara moved to London, making history as the first black woman to present on British television in 1968. What's it like at the Paraplegic Games? Well, it's very good, nice atmosphere, isn't it, Neil? Yeah. Which country did you like best? Which isn't a loaded question. Oh, I don't want to. I don't want to patronise you, but Jamaica, I thought, was quite nice. <laughs> you also play ping pong, both of you. One of the producers, who I hadn't been getting along with too well, called me into her office and said, we can't renew your contract because we're getting all these calls and letters saying, get that N-word off our screens. At the time, I remember going to the Houses of Parliament because the Race Relations Act was being debated and became law just at the very same time, 1968. But the TV company didn't 
say to those callers, no, we're going to keep her. What you're saying is against the law. No, they didn't do that. They agreed with what the racists were saying. And so they didn't renew my contract. On returning to Jamaica, Barbara applied her journalistic skills to the music industry. I got a nice phone call from Chris Blackwell, you know, the man who made Bob Marley and the Whalers internationally famous. He said, hey, Barbara, we'd love you to do the PR. I went up there and there was this young man named Bob Marley. And he became my friend from then until he passed. Really friend, you know. No, I was never one of his girls. (laughs) (laughs) I was not going to (laughs) ask. People do ask because I've written, one of my novels is inspired by Bob. Joseph Arasta Reggae Fables. So people say, ha-ha, were you one of his girls? No, that's why he loved me so much, you know. I wasn't. I was his real friend. Barbara's work with Marley, her work on the landmark Jamaican film The Harder They Come, as well as the years of racism that she faced living in the UK during the era of the growing Black Power movement, led to her conversion to Rastafarianism. Barbara's Rastafarianism would lead her to dedicate her life to campaigning for social justice for African descendants on the island and beyond. Rastafari was born out of the desire of the descendants of slaves to see themselves as noble people, people with a history and an origin that wasn't just slavery. Barbara's activism has seen her fight for Gangivites, as well as the recognition of black African culture in Jamaica. And in time, she would become a Jamaican opposition senator, fighting on a ticket of reparations on the national and international stage. I was the first Rasta ever to sit in Parliament, still the only Rasta who's ever sat in Parliament. In 2001, Barbara was invited to join the Jamaican delegation at the United Nations World Conference against racism, racial discrimination, xenophobia and related intolerance in Durban, South Africa. It was seen at the time as an opportunity to put the fight for reparations front and centre on the international stage. We come here to make our voices heard. We come to talk about reparation. We come to talk about those things. This is where we start. Fidel Castro was there. Yasser Arafat was there. And the Americans sent Madeleine Albright. Reparations kept coming up in it. Par conséquent, des crimes contre l'humanité et mérite réparation. We sat in a meeting room with representatives from the European countries who had enslaved Africans and descendants of Africans who had been enslaved. There were quite a few from Africa mostly, but there were quite a few of us from the Caribbean. The Africa group also feels that we need to communicate quite clearly that to us the whole issue of an apology is quite important. And reparation is saying, we're sorry. We're sorry for what happened. (laughs) And people actually don't know how liberating to confess is. Eventually, after many days of discussions, we came up with 18 forms of reparations to which I asked to be added a final one, the welcomed return and resettlement of those descendants of Africans who so desire. Our Jamaican call for reparations began with Rastafari asking for repatriation to Africa 
to be financed with reparations. And we've always held that. Reparations is the second word that must come after repatriation. Rastafari want to be returned to our home, to our ancestral home. And impractical as that may sound, that's still the core desire. Many Rastas have tried to repatriate on their own. Ghana has made an open door for us, no visas. Some countries have apologized for their role in slavery. We want to go home. You know, Rasta want to go home. And it was important that that got added to the list of reparations. The conference as a whole declared for the first time that slavery and the transatlantic slave trade were not only appalling tragedies in the history of humanity, but a crime against humanity, and should always have been considered so. It also acknowledged that slavery and the slave trade were among the major sources and manifestations of racism, not reparations, but a victory nonetheless. After the conference, Barbara returned to Jamaica, where she continued the struggle to take the conversation about reparations beyond Rasta campfires to build a popular movement. The case for reparations for Barbara and many other Jamaicans we spoke to is symbolised by the inequality that exists between the British royal family and many of the people who live in the Caribbean countries where the British monarch remains head of state. That huge crown. When you go to where the people working in this hotel live, and then you'll see what the case for reparations is. Repair. Repair the wrong. Repair the wrong. Pay reparations. I don't want any. You can keep your damn reparations. I don't want nothing from any of you. You gave me already. You gave me racism. I don't want nothing more from you. But give those who need. Give those who want. Barbara's experience with the UN highlights one of the key problems stalling meaningful progress towards reparations. During the 2001 conference in South Africa, collective movement was being made towards a comprehensive apology. But it was reported that at the time, Britain, leading a small number of allies in the form of the Netherlands, Spain and Portugal, were responsible for derailing the European Union's desire to issue a straightforward apology for the transatlantic slave trade. Because the A word, apologize, remains extremely difficult and it's not a proposal that has been retained by the European Union. But there are different whirlings of regrets. We don't uh, accept any financial reparation, but we are stressing and enhancing the wording on international cooperation and international solidarity. It's said that Britain was particularly concerned about the financial ramifications of apologizing. And so an expression of regret was settled upon. So we're bound together by the ties of history, of language, of culture. In the case of the British Overseas Territories of this region, our links are even closer. Along these lines in 2015, the then British Prime Minister David Cameron spoke to the Jamaican Parliament and acknowledged the horrors of slavery, but said that... But I do hope that as friends who have gone through so much together since those darkest of times, we can move on from this painful legacy and continue to build for the future. A couple of years prior, the Legacies of British Slavery database had shown that a distant cousin of Cameron 
General Sir James Duff, was one of the beneficiaries of the compensation payments made to British enslavers. This month marks 23 years since the passing of the late great Bernie Grant, a former member of this house and the founder of the UK reparations movement in the UK. In his last Prime Minister's questions before his death, he asked for an apology to the people of African descent, living and dead, for our country's role in slavery and colonialism. And at the end of April 2023, in response to a question by opposition MP Bel Ribeiro Adi, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak refused to apologise for the UK's role in the slave trade or to commit to paying reparations. No, no, Mr. Speaker, that what I think our focus should now be on doing is, of course, understanding our history in all its parts, not running away from it, uh, but right now making sure that we have a society which is inclusive and tolerant of people from all backgrounds. Uh, that's something that we on this house, our side of the house, are committed to doing and will continue to deliver. But trying to unpick our history is not the right way forward and it's not something that we will focus our energies on. A Labour spokesperson also added that their MP's call for reparations was not party policy. Hi, good afternoon. Very well, thank you. Despite repeated resistance, the international movement for reparative justice has continued. Okay, I wonder if we could just start. Do you mind just telling me who you are, please? Okay, so I'm Lalita Davis Mattis. I am the chair of the National Council on Reparation, Jamaica. I met Lalita Davis-Mattis at the University of the West Indies campus in Kingston, where she is their general counsel. As chair of Jamaica's National Council on Reparations, which advises the government on the path towards reparatory justice, Ms. Davis-Mattis also represents the country on the wider regional CARICOM Council. Formed in 1973, CARICOM is an intergovernmental economic union of Caribbean states that has drawn up a wide range of demands for European states on the basis of enslavement as a crime against humanity. Drawn up in 2014, their comprehensive list of 10 demands includes things like an apology, raising regional literacy levels on the basis of enslaved people being prevented from learning to read and write, knowledge-building programmes, psychological rehabilitation and health system development. The population in the Caribbean today has the highest incidence in the world of two particular chronic diseases. The science has shown that we are prone to diabetes, hypertension, etc., as a result of our past, in terms of what we were fed and the extent to which that has now become a part of us. And so we believe that the development of our health institutions is also important. There are also calls for support for indigenous communities with technological development and crucially, for economic assistance in the form of the cancellation of international debt. Because we're also paying you who decimated us in the first place. It's a reset. That's really what it is. I wonder if there's ever a tension between thinking about what European states might agree to and what Caribbean nations really want. Is that ever a conversation? The word put it is this. We know what we are owed. And we know that if you are to quantify that, what is going to amount to. And we also know that if we were to ask for those payments in full at one point, you would have depleted some of your resources. So we are cognizant of that. We're not apologetic about it. Because if you owe me, you owe me. What you need to do is negotiate with me as to how you're going to pay me back. <laughs> 
Caracom envisages a fund to make sure that future generations are looked after by any reparations payments made today. What will the fund look like? Clearly, it would have to be managed. Clearly, it would have to have its own investment protocols like you do every other fund. Certainly, you'd have to have application procedures. Certainly, you'd have to have a capital base that remains. Certainly, you perhaps have to back it up as well with something else in order for it to exist over time. There are also programmes in Jamaica for what Ms Davis Mattis describes as internal reparations, looking at the way institutions like the police, schooling and the tourism industry operate in the wake of centuries of slavery and colonialism. And now, in the context of the climate crisis, the calls to build infrastructure and resilience through reparations have become even more urgent. If you think about the fact that small island developing states, like the Caribbean region, that our contribution to global climate change is almost negligible. But at the end of the day, we're the ones who are more likely to be affected by global climate change. We're the ones whose coastlines are more likely to be denuded. We're the ones who are more likely to be climate refugees. And uh, I will say to my class, God forbid we become climate refugees, who's gonna take us? We're black. And we see that globally, I mean, it's in our faces, that countries are less likely to take black people in their borders than they are to take white people. That's a fact. For Ms. Davis Mattis, the realisation of this plan depends on shifting mindsets from Europeans living in societies that remain in so many ways shaped by this history. There must be something up here called a conscience or in here to determine how you deal with me because you're really not better than I am. But your systems dictate that. And so in a sense, people are forced to fall in line. The plantation system has not left us because resistance to oppression of blacks is still seen as points for punishment and incarceration. Why can a black child not play in the park? What a white child can play in the park. Why do you call the police because the black man is walking on your street? That's because you have been programmed to believe that that black man is a threat to you. So until you deprogram, not just the black man, but the other man who believes he's being threatened, then we won't get where we want to go as fast as we can. Reparations campaigners believe that lessons can be learned by looking at other state compensation schemes. For example, the German government has paid around $86 billion to Jewish survivors and their families for the Holocaust. And in 2013, the British government also agreed to pay nearly £20 million to compensate survivors of the Mau Mau massacre in 1950s Kenya. For those persons who think that it's not going to come, I think it is going to come. I don't think these colonizers can hold this out for very long. And I think that as a black race, wherever we are, we must have that audacity to hope. The change that CARICOM wants has to happen on a state level. We're not there yet, but there has been some progress from European governments. The Netherlands has issued an apology for slavery and announced a package of educational measures. And recently, the Portuguese president has said the country should also issue a full apology. Outside of CARICOM, Other reparative policies, like more African representation in bodies like the UN Security Council or the World Bank, for example, need state backing. 
but there's little doubt that right now we are in a moment where change is happening without government, at an institutional level and among families and individuals. But I want to talk about Glasgow University first. They've made what they might consider, and others as well, a bold move to pay back slave trade profits. Laura Trevelyan is a former longtime broadcaster with the BBC. David Lassels is a second cousin of King Charles. They are two of the people who have started a group called Heirs of Slavery. It's comprised of people whose ancestors supported and profited from the transatlantic slave trade. In an unprecedented statement from Buckingham Palace, King Charles today signaled his support for research into the royal family's historical links with the slave trade. It follows the publication of a document showing that William III received shares from a Bristol-based slave trader. And in 2023, The Guardian joined that list. The Guardian newspaper has been looking into its past and has discovered an uncomfortable truth that its founders had a connection to the transatlantic slave trade. As a result, the paper's owner, the Scott Trust, has announced a decade-long programme of restorative justice. For The Guardian's editor-in-chief, Catherine Viner, there was one meeting during this three-year project that particularly stood out. A presentation from Dr. Cassandra Gupta, Cassie, on what had been discovered about the Jamaican sugar plantation called Success, owned by one of the Guardian's backers. She was able even to find the names of some of the people who were enslaved on that plantation. And it just started to feel very real. It started to feel very human. There were connections to other human beings. And I remember feeling pretty upset after that meeting. I just found it very, very disturbing. One of the things that the Scott Trust has done is apologise to those descendant communities. Are you able just to give us a sense of what the Scott Trust said in this apology? Everything we know from descendant communities is that it has to start with an apology. And so apologising and also using particular language in apologising was really important to us. So the shorter version of the apology, which I'd just like to read out, is as the owners of The Guardian, the Scott Trust apologises to the affected communities identified in the research and surviving descendants of the enslaved for the part The Guardian and its founders had in this crime against humanity. And again, the feedback from the descendant communities was that this phrase, crime against humanity, was an important one to include and it was one we felt very strongly was an accurate description. In 2023, the Scott Trust board members met in person to collectively sign their names to this historic apology. But clearly, saying sorry is not enough. For The Guardian, a multi-part response and programme of restorative justice measures had to follow too. Over the next decade, the Scott Trust has announced that it will create a substantial fund to support community projects and programmes in the southeastern U.S. Gullah Geechee region and in Jamaica. This fund will be developed with extensive community input. In addition, part of the response is geared towards enacting real change within the Guardian newspaper itself. I think very early on we realised that if we are going to do justice to the findings, we needed to do something about what our own organisation does. And in terms of our journalism, there are so many parts of the world where communities are undercovered. This includes an increase in the scope of Guardian reporting, with a number of new correspondents to be based in the Caribbean, South America and Africa, as well as those centred on black communities in the UK and US. Beyond the Guardian, it will also expand its journalism training bursary scheme and create a fellowship programme for mid-career black journalists. 
To add to that, the response will also include partnerships and community programmes with a strong focus on Manchester, the city in which The Guardian was founded. Finally, the Scott Trust will continue to fund research through a three-year partnership with the Wilberforce Institute at the University of Hull. I think what's important is that we didn't start off with a figure and say, we want to commit this amount and we're going to work out what we can do with that amount of money. We came up with a programme. We then worked out how much it would cost and that's where we arrived at the final figure, which is significantly more than £10 million. But it was a bottom-up process, not a top-down process. How do you think this project changes the Guardian's relationship with black readers specifically? It's renewed our drive to build trust in black communities. One of the ways of doing that, of course, is having a representative staff who have contacts in those communities and know what's really going on in those communities and do reporting about those communities that people within those communities recognise. What would you say to people who argue that this is work that The Guardian should have been doing already? It's something we've made a dramatic impact on in the last decade, but I still think we're not there. Clearly there's more to do and we're learning all the time. Is it ever going to be possible to completely change The Guardian on a cultural level? Won't it always be what some see as a white elite institution started by cotton merchants in the 19th century? Well, I would start off by saying we're much less white and much less elite than we used to be. But I think we live in a white-dominated, very much elite-dominated society. And so we have to operate in the world that we're in and try and make a difference within that world. This has been a very open project. We've laid ourselves bare. The researcher has published everything she found. We didn't ask her to hold back at all. And that's our approach to the present and the future as well. You know, we want people's feedback. We want people's ideas. We want to be as best as we possibly can be. And to maybe those on the other side who would say, all of this is just virtue signaling, sort of wokery gone mad. What would you say to them? All I can tell you is that this project has been really well received by our staff, by our readers. We have a huge number of readers around the world now. And I think it means a lot to them. They feel very engaged with it. And we can't let the right-wing media in Britain define the terms for The Guardian. We're going to define the terms for ourselves. Has this project made you think about the role of the media when it comes to the legacies of slavery and struggle of black communities today? I have to say doing this project has made me see everything differently. So just this week when I read a story about black mothers being four times more likely to die in childbirth than white mothers, I couldn't help but see it in reference to slavery and the racism that it gave birth to. And so I increasingly think that you can't really understand this country unless you understand our history and Children just aren't really taught about this in schools. They're taught about the heroic bits of our history. They're taught about defeating the Nazis. And that's a good bit of our history and that should be taught. But they also need to know about things that were less heroic. And you've talked a bit about how The Guardian's changed and will change because of this project. How do you think it's changed you? I feel really grateful for this project. I'm really grateful that we've done it and grateful to the historians and journalists who did the work because I've learned so much. I think the idea that this project has really helped me grasp is that racism was an invention that's just used to divide people, often for commercial ends. (laughs) And understanding racism in that context makes it look profoundly different. 
For Joseph, this project has shown how much The Guardian has changed over the years. February 1999, at the time of McPherson, when I got a group of people of colour together for the first time, there were 12 of us. Now there are approaching 200 of us within The Guardian. And we meet regularly, we discuss, we talk, we... We share stories, we gain strength from each other and we have a really vibrant, dynamic people of colour group at The Guardian and The Observer. And it also marks the beginning of a new phase in The Guardian's history. The Guardian right now is not perfect, but I see a journey and I see how much it's changed for the better over the last 20, 30 years. And I'm hoping that as we look forward, we can see it continue to change for the better. And that's going to help not just Guardian journalists, but wider society too. Thank you for listening to Cotton Capital. That's all for this series. The series producer was Courtney Youssef and producer was Silas Gray. Colin Stone was the consultant executive producer. The development series producer was Tej Adelaide. The development producers were Wayland Mackenzie Witter and Fatuma Haira. The historical consultants were Dr. Misha Ewan, Dr. Keston Perry, Lance Parker, Professor Abisede George, and Professor Maria Helena Pereira Toledo Machado, and Dr. Kerry Pimblot. The commissioning editors were Nicole Jackson and me, Maya Wolf Robinson. Original music was by Melo Zed. The sound design was by Max Anderson. The hosts were Denine L. Brown, Lanry Bakery, and me, Maya Wolf Robinson. Thank you to all of our guests and to everyone else who has contributed to this series. For a full list of credits and to read all of the journalism from this project, please go to theguardian.com forward slash cotton dash capital. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.